0: Hello, welcome to Gunfighter Cast, episode number 126. I'm your host Daniel Shaw and I'm here with Andy Brown. How you doing, Andy?
1: Doing good, Daniel.
0: Andy, thanks for for coming on Gunfighter Cast and and having this conversation with me. I'm really looking forward to this. I've got some questions down and I I really have no idea where it's going to go. There's just so much information I wish I could cover your entire book, Warnings Unheated, here on the podcast, but uh, what I, my goal is I'm hoping to inspire the listeners to go read your book and, and learn from it, because there are just so many good lessons learned and, and things that we can take away from this book. Warnings Unheated. What, what is Warnings Unheated, Andy?
1: Warnings Unheeded." the subtitle is Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. It covers two tragedies that unfolded when I was stationed at Fairchild in Spokane, Washington, when I was in the Air Force as a security policeman later that career field became security forces but in 1994 I was a patrolman on the base at the time I was a a regular patrolman in a patrol car but they had just newly implemented a bike patrol program and it was my second day on bike patrol and we had an active shooter incident that I responded to as the first person on scene and then four days later we had a B 52 that went down on the base, and I would come to find out that both of those incidents had been warned about. Professionals that were aware of an unstable airman and warned their superiors that he would one day commit violence. They warned, <clears throat> they made those warnings, but nobody acted on them. And the same thing happened with a pilot of a B 52 that was getting increasingly reckless, so much so that. Crew members didn't want to fly with him anymore, and they warned their superiors, and again, they were overruled or ignored until he crashed his B-52 on a air airshow practice run.
0: You didn't go into a whole lot of detail of the role that you played in that, and I, I'm, I'm glad you didn't because I, the fact that you were the, the first responder, and reading the book and you being the first responder, you know, you you stop the shooter you you stop the incident from happening or continuing to happen by by downing the uh the shooter there um and we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but my next question is this book I've never read anything that was formatted in the way this book is formatted i've read a lot of events about active shooters hostages a lot of things that happen out there in the world and and in the u.s because i i I do some uh, active shooter and active killer defense training myself and there's a a lot of a lot of literature out there on it and a lot of information but i've never picked up anything that went from beginning to end and really cataloged all the i mean your title is very descriptive all the warnings that went unheeded uh, up into the event was taking place. Both of the events were taking place, and I I just thought it was incredibly well done. And the fact that you were the man who who stopped this this guy committing his evil acts, murdering those people makes you immensely qualified to write this book because uh, you have uh, the intimate knowledge of, of being there, uh, the sights and the sounds, and we'll we'll talk about some of that later on. But I, I want to dive into the beginning of this and, and just talk about some of those warnings that were unheeded because every single active shooter incident that I research, I find a tremendous amount of these warnings that are unheeded. And I'm sure you do as well.
1: Yes, I do. I I always like to read as much as I can about these incidents to learn from them. And this is the book that I wanted to read about this incident, but nobody was writing it. So I ended up having to do it myself. A lot of the incidents that I read about, they're mostly just a recap of newspaper articles or maybe a police report. They're short on details, but I did pick up or do pick up little things like little warnings that could have been acted on so that we can learn how to prevent these and that's how I that's what I was striving for when I wrote this book was to put every detail and every fact in there so that people can learn from this incident and be better prepared to prevent future ones
0: why why now why why are you just now releasing this did it take that long to get it all together
1: well I've been researching it for since it started, just because I was curious and wanted to, to know exactly what happened there. Um, so I've been researching it since 1994, but didn't really start writing it until 2009. And it took me seven years to actually get it to where I felt proud of the product and felt that it was worthy of of the subject matter and the people that lived and died through the incidents. I was actually encouraged, although I'd been kicking around the idea of writing the book when I went to a training class at the Firearms Academy of Seattle, I met Masad Ayoub, and he had me speak to the class about the incident. And later, encouraged me to. He said I should write a book. So that was all the uh, more encouragement that I needed. That he could see that there was lessons that could be learned from it. So uh,
0: there is, and I, I'm going to do my best to do it, it, it justice. So I, we, it's like you gave kind of a brief overview of the book and and what it's about, but. Can you tell me in just your you could go give an elaborate detail it it's your world whatever you want but if you were to say it in in one sentence why would you write this book? Why did you do it?
1: To save lives.
0: Awesome. That would be the
1: the one sentence, but it was also being in in law enforcement, I felt the duty to protect my community and I got out of the Air Force in 1999, but I still feel compelled to to protect people in my community, and I was thinking this book would be the the best way to do that as far as protecting them from mass public murder incidents. So it was also a way to to honor the, the people that were killed and the people that lived through these incidents. I knew when I started researching it, I contacted as many people as I could that I could locate in the police reports. And once I spoke with with them, if if I could identify somebody who wrote a statement, I would contact them and they would tell me what more that they knew as far as more details. And then I'd ask them if they knew anybody else who might be able to give me some information. So it was a big rabbit hole. I just had to force myself to stop researching it eventually. But a lot of the people that I spoke to were still struggling with the incident. There were still a lot of unanswered questions and they were having a hard time putting it putting the incidents behind themselves.
0: I, I can imagine. I, I mean, that's all I can do is imagine how, how difficult this could be for you uh, diving into here because some of these events that I research, I I get very emotionally attached to some of the victims, even though they're no longer with us. The more I learn about them and the more I, I read about them and, and hear and watch videos from you know their w- older or younger or whatever, Um it is very difficult, man. This had to have been a serious labor of love, man.
1: Yeah. Not only were people struggling with the actual trauma if they were on the scene of, of either of the tragedies, but also people who had tried to, to prevent the, the gunman or get him the mental health help that he needed, they felt guilty after they realized he killed people that they hadn't done more. So since writing the book and publishing it, I've heard from several people who thanked me for writing it that it helped them put the incident behind them and to move forward so that that's very re- rewarding that's
0: good uh, we'll talk more about this a little later on but uh, it, it's also a little bit of therapy for yourself as I understand it
1: it was yeah I don't didn't realize it would be helpful when I set out writing it but it was kind of a like a, a prolonged exposure self-induced after repeatedly re-experiencing the incidents as I was writing them and rewriting them it, Every time I would write or reread a sentence, it, was, it had a lesser effect on me, so it was therapeutic in the end.
0: Andy, I, I tell people that I am not a mental health professional. I, I don't know the answers in legislation and litigation, and I don't know the answers in, uh, uh, in in the mental health system in the United States or in the military. And I that's not my world. My world is stopping violence with violence, so I, I try to stay in my lane. But as I read this book, you obviously dove very deep in the the mental health system in the U.S. military as well as, as the United States and gained a, I'm guessing, much more knowledge than you had before on that and probably found some good things and some bad things in there. My next question is, what did you discover about, if there is one, a relationship between active shooters and mental health?
1: Yes, I, I did discover both the good and the bad about the mental health system, both military and civilian, but I wrote the book very objectively. I put both the good and the bad in there and put everything in there that, that uh, somebody who's a, a policymaker can take that information and make some changes because, like you, I don't have the answers. I know what went wrong here, but I don't know exactly how to fix it. But as far as mental health and active shooters, they usually have been identified by mental health professionals as somebody that's in need of some help. And they usually have a severe mental illness and usually it involves paranoia and schizophrenia and they get in their head that they've been wronged and they see that there's been an injustice or whether it's right or wrong they feel like they have to uh, seek revenge on on some people or some like a facility or a a school or a hospital like in this example or a race or
0: you know an ethnic yeah. group or yeah no oh, absolutely um and we, we see that in a lot of places uh charleston sick temple and you know it's uh it's kind of the, the the same thing and these it's it, you know there's there's a lot of a lot of times we don't even get to know you know, I mean, there, there's there's some percentages out there about how many active shooters, you know, had a serious mental health condition, but in a lot of cases, we don't get to know because the uh, uh, the shooter ends up being killed, or the stabber, whatever they are, the killer ends up being killed, and they may have never saw medical attention or mental health attention or any kind of intervention there, and parents would deny it, and we can we know the news what they report. Uh, I mean, heck, they they reported that Dean Melberg was. The, the choir boy that went crazy for one few minutes one day, right? And Yeah. We're gonna talk more about that a little bit later on, but I, I've told people in this one of the years that I'm I'm heavily investigating right now, all the news reports were completely wrong. They're looking for buzz lines and something catchphrase to get people's attention and, and saying something so insane like the choir boy went crazy for one day or t- for one hour, turned into a madman, is completely the opposite direction of the truth in reality.
1: Yeah, it's totally misleading. The media can definitely have an agenda, or it seems that, w- that way anyway. After you get done reading Warnings Unheeded and you see all of the bizarre and, and crazy things, and, and how many people thought he was dangerous for. Two three years leading up to him opening fire in the hospital, and then you see the media, the chapter that covers the media, and they're like, first thing they do is, is blame the firearm. They show a picture of a black rifle and say, this is the gun that caused all the carnage. And then then they say that he was a anybody who knew him in the week leading up to this incident thought he was polite and friendly, and they don't know how he could have done this. It's just, it's just crazy. It's very misleading.
0: We see that all the time, and I, I'm willing to bet that it's rarely ever the truth. Uh, in this situation, the listeners haven't read this book. Maybe some of them have. The murderer here, he he was sent in recruit training uh, for the Air Force. He was sent at his tech school. He was sent from his first duty station. Uh, his second, third, he was constantly, everybody who was around this person was fearful of him. They were they all were afraid to be alone next to him. The commanders and the lower level unit leaders would all give directives and uh, guidance to the other members of, of the of, of his team or whoever he worked with to say you know stay away from him, don't be alone with him. Uh, it was there was nobody who ran into this person that you know basically that uh that that didn't realize that there was something seriously wrong with him.
1: Yes, yeah, he was referred for mental health counseling from the get-go at every point of his career in basic training, like you said, at his tech school and at every Air Force base he was stationed at. And every time he was referred to mental health, they said he needs to be discharged. And and the commanders that had the final decision on that, they, they overruled the mental health and kept him in the military. For but even just reasons. discharging him. Yeah, for various reasons. it was It was odd. I I couldn't believe it every time I uncovered another instance of him being kept in the military and and not being mandated to have to receive mental health care.
0: You know, after he was at, uh, was it Wilford Hall? After he was there the the way that happened, uh, and the things, the interactions that took place there, that is just it's just it, it blows my mind that he was retained in the military. But one of the reasons why, and there were various reasons there, but one of the reasons and one of the, that kept being a uh a common theme for him uh staying in was his mother.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Um can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, the, the 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 relationship there and how that influenced the the lack of appropriate action with uh, the military and and discharging him. Or getting him to longer-term care.
1: Okay, yeah, Wilford Hall is a military hospital in Lackland, at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. When Melberg was stationed at Fairchild, he had a in, he had a problem with his roommate that led to him being referred to mental health, and the mental health professionals at Fairchild sent him to Wilford Hall at an inpatient psychiatrist Psychiatric unit, and while he was there, several of the mental health professionals thought he was hearing voices and and was basically schizoid or about to have a a break with reality. And they recommended he be discharged and, and sent to a group home where he could receive civilian mental health care. And when Dean Melberg's mother heard about that, she f- flew down there and spent most of her time on the uh, on the psychiatric ward, harassing the doctors and the patients and basically interfering in his care. They, she was pretty much in denial that he had any mental health problems. And the two of them enlisted the help of their congressman, and he wrote letters to the Air Force and asked that the air force look into this young man's uh, commitment on the mental health ward. And I think that pretty much intimidated the the military into not pursuing his discharge, but it's hard to say. It, I, I write it objectively in the book. I don't say that one thing led to the other, but it was kind of coincidental that as soon as the congressman's inquiry was, was made, Milberg was, discharged from that hospital and sent to another air force base
0: I, d- I don't have it with me right now but i do recall a a passage in the book where there was um, a commander or a health provider that was basically passing information to uh, another one that melberg was going to and telling them that be careful his mother's connected and knows people and they can cause problems so i mean there obviously was a little bit of fear there how much of an influence you know who knows
1: yeah, there were definitely individual doctors that that thought that 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 is why he was allowed to remain in the in the air force. The air force in general won't admit to that, but there there were definitely individuals who who believed that had a that that was the cause when he was sent to a, his second base in New Mexico and was identified with mental health there only one or two months after he was at that base. The uh, mental health. In New Mexico at Cannon Air Force Base called to, down to Wilford Hall and that's where they got that information from. So that, that that commander, when she was working to get him discharged from the military, she made sure she did everything by the book so that he wouldn't be able to fight it. The only thing that she didn't do was make sure that he received mental health care on the outside. Right.
0: Andy, we're going to take a little quick break and uh, we're going to be right back and I'm going to ask you a question. It may be one of those questions that you don't want to answer, but uh, we'll see here in just a second. I hope it's not. All right. Hey, guys, Daniel here. I want to invite you to go check out Bootleg Inc. at bootleginc.com. Bootleg has top quality products for everything that you need to build a solid AR. Bootleg is the sister company to primary weapon systems and contains a searchable database with everything you need to know to build an AR. Go check them out at bootleginc.com. Andy, based on uh, what you've learned here, and I've got this question because I I asked myself this question. I've got a, a son that... Uh, has lived with me part of his life and I, I fought for him tried to get full custody It didn't quite work out. This may be you know, too much information out there for the internet But he, he grew up with his mom and he's had some some difficulties He's a great kid very talented has made some bad decisions He is really doing very well right now, and I'm excited for him and uh, proud of him he's gonna be a great man and uh, but he's, he's had some difficulties along the way and I, I am not able to provide the 100% supervision that he required. And his mom isn't either. And him and his mom and I are, are not together uh, anymore. I haven't been for quite some time. I, I elected to do what I had to do. And it's a, it's a huge financial burden on me. But he is at a all-boys school. Getting his mind right is what I say. He's not being punished, but he is getting the help that he needed to help him learn to make better decisions and, 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 uh, be the, the person that he can be because he's, like I say, he really is a, uh, very talented and gifted in a lot of ways. Uh, awesome kid, but I, I it was a decision that was very difficult for me to make, uh, but he's there now, and uh, I'm hoping to pull him out of there sometime soon and come stay with me full-time. Um, I got a lot of work for him to do, and I'm looking forward to it, but it was a very tough decision for me, and uh, it's kind of tough for me to talk about it right now, and it may not even be gunfighter cast material, but it's where I'm at, and I, I believe it's the only answer, the only thing that I could do. I look at some of these active killer events, some of these shootings, and I don't think that he was on that kind of road. I haven't seen any indications for that, but there Just the decisions he was making were were kind of scary, and uh, he needed some help. I look into these active shooter events and everything else, and I see a lot of times parents who were maybe oblivious or didn't want to see what the reality was or they didn't want to take action or they just thought, well, it can't happen to me or it can't be happening to my kid. My kid wouldn't do that. But based on what you've learned, Andy, if there was another Melberg out there, and I'm sure there is what would you tell his or his or her mother or father to look out for to uh, to speak up about to to take action on any would you give them any kind of advice and if you would what would it be
1: yeah if if they definitely had this, the same symptoms and signs as melberg i would tell them that they need to seek mental health help for that individual and and get them the treatment that they need the the problem is i know that some parents are in denial and and they will stand up and protect their kid and deny that they're in need of help. But even the ones who realize that their child needs some mental health help, the help isn't out there. Unless a person has already demonstrated that they're a danger, or even if they can be identified as a possible danger, and if a police officer or other professional can articulate that to a court, you might be able to get them into a mental health facility, but probably no longer than 72 hours, and then they are released. So there's a definite problem with the current system that we have in America today.
0: There really isn't that long-term care very much available anymore, right?
1: Nope, not since they deinstitutionalized the the mental health system. And I understand that those those uh, mental health hospitals that, that we saw, like in the movie, one threw, flew over the cuckoo's nest. There were some that the patients were being abused or just not in the best Mm -hmm. conditions, but closing them all down was the the wrong move without having a system in place to take care of the mentally ill. Where right now the, uh, the jails and the prisons are the ones that are taking care of them or they're on the streets.
0: Yes. Uh, there was a statistic, I think it was in your book, or I may have been reading it somewhere else, uh, I think it was in your book, where a third of homeless people have mental issues, and there was a very large percentage of uh, individuals who were incarcerated that also suffer from mental illness.
1: Yes. Yeah, a, a big, not a majority, but a, a big percentage of the homeless folk on the streets in America have severe mental illness, as well as in our jails and, and prisons. And it's a shame because it would be a lot better for them if they had a facility that they could go to where they weren't around other criminals. And also, they, are, they have a higher percentage of suicide. So we're not doing them any favors by not giving them the, the treatment that they need.
0: Right, And, and the thing is, a, a lot of times, you know, not every time, but a lot of times it's recoverable it's not a terminal mental illness that that they're yes. going to be suffering from this forever and they cannot get better that's that's not always the case so uh, having a parent or a friend or a a brother or father uh anything that that has a, a mental illness or you're seeing some of the warning signs of that you know getting them help ignoring it is is definitely not the answer we're talking if they were bleeding you would want to stop the bleeding and it's uh it should be looked at the same way
1: Definitely, when when a severe mental illness progresses to the point where the person who has it doesn't even realize they're sick, and they're so sick they can't take care of themselves, it's up to somebody else to step in and, and provide them the treatment that they need, especially if they're dangerous. But a lot of them aren't dangerous. Not everybody who has a severe mental illness is a danger to themselves or others, but they're not able to take care of themselves, and sometimes they don't realize it. So we need to have a system in place to take care of them.
0: So you have mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about some warning signs or, or signals that the parents may see or, or loved ones may see in that other person. It may not be a child; it could be an adult, or friend, or colleague, or a coworker, or anything. What are some of those signs
1: of somebody who might be dangerous? Yes, well, I've listed them in the back of the book after reading several other books on mass murder and and the mentally ill, but. If somebody has lost touch with reality and and they read threatening, if they feel threatened by benign comments, and they read insults into remarks that people make that are mm-hmm. totally not meant that way. That that could be one sign.
0: Yeah, that is one. You know, the uh, the lack of reality. You know, the the weird. There was there were small things that I I don't know the correct terms for it. I'm not a psychologist. All right, but uh, there was. Some things that that Melberg did, for example, like chronic masturbation, and he didn't really care where he was. Now that's no. to me, that's uh, you're you really don't understand <laughs> social dynamics or uh, cause and effect in in a lot of different ways. If if that is okay with somebody, and it may not be masturbation, it could be something else. You know that is just clearly not okay, not acceptable.
1: Yeah, clear antisocial behavior, right? Right. Yeah,
0: and that's it. Uh, disassociative, you know? They, like, they, they just not even paying attention. Don't even care. Yeah. And I, I, as I'm reading this book, and and my wife, we're we're laying in the bed. She was like, "Hey, why don't you read it out loud?" Well, you know, it's probably not something you're going to really dig. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to change some of the words that are used because my six year old's listening. But I'll give it a shot. And she didn't read she heard like five pages somewhere in the uh the first third of the book when it was going through the uh the events um where Melberg was being recommended for a discharge and going through the mental health system and all that. And I was reading some of his journal entries and mm. she was like, Wow. That yeah he they it reading those things is disturbing. It was like reading fiction. It it was it really like I I I don't think that if I if I purposely wanted to write something crazy, I don't think I could do a better job, Andy.
1: Yeah, it was it was a pretty um remarkable when you can have your roommate come home from looking for a a used vehicle and he asks to borrow a couple hundred dollars, and your roommate the other roommate gets upset about it and then writes in his journal that he thinks that this is threatening his career and he can't believe that his roommate would risk their friendship over money and and just how much an insult it was for him to ask to to borrow a couple hundred bucks until payday it he he, the uh, journal entries were a, a, a good find and they really do provide an insight into his mind about how he misconstrued benign comments and and actions
0: I I would say that 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 journal and maybe other journals like it could be a wealth of knowledge for the right people if they were to turn tune in and actually pay attention and maybe see some things that 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 someone else was doing that was similar you know the the, the thought processes I guess you could say
1: yeah definitely I'm hoping that other people will read this book and use it as a, a template for other incidents that haven't been covered very well. Cause I'm, I'm pretty sure that just from the little bit that I can read about other mass public murders or active killers, they all have commonalities. And I'm sure if we dig deeper, they, they have a lot in common. And if we could dig deep and, and put all the details out there for the professionals to study, we can learn how to identify these people before they act and definitely save some lives.
0: Andy, my next question is about just that, and uh, I'm going to ask that right when we get back from hearing about how awesome Nighthawk Customs is. We'll be right back. If you're in the market for the absolute best 1911 handguns and accessories, look no further than Nighthawk Custom. Nighthawk has over 36 flavors of top-quality custom 1911s, and they definitely have one for you. These are custom, handmade 1911s. Each gun is made from start to finish by a single gunsmith. Nighthawk's slogan and philosophy is, One gun, one gunsmith. Now, owning the world's finest 1911 has never been easier. Go to www.nighthawkcustom.com and finance your Nighthawk Custom 1911 today. I've read a lot of these books and I've read a lot of people's stories about shootings and other incidents and I often the author takes the makes themselves out to be this big hero and and you don't know how much truth is in there or if anything was uh maybe expanded a little bit beyond what really happened and everything else you play one of the smallest roles in this book, but in reality, you played a, a huge role. But it wasn't about you at all in this. I mean, there's some lessons learned for you personally. And we're going to talk about that later on. But I, I I really appreciated that because you were able to focus on what was really important. And I what you were just talking about using the book as a template. My my next question is, you know, are you planning on writing another book on a different active killer incident uh, and using the same format?
1: I wouldn't say no, but if I do it anytime soon, I think my wife would kill me because it took took a lot of uh, my personal time away from the family. And, and I'd like to take a break from it, from writing right now to spend some more quality time with them. I've got a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old, so I don't want to lock myself in a room and, and write and research while they're growing up outside.
0: What I was thinking, when I was getting toward the end of this book, I was thinking, uh, I I need to find some funding, and I don't know how to do that, but I need to find some funding, you need to find some funding, and we need a team of researchers, and just hand them over to you and let you do your thing, because the the information that you came up with in this book and the way it's formatted, uh, absolutely awesome, and I, I can't say that enough, but if I would like to see this. I, I can't even. I can't even begin to imagine the information that would be uncovered if if multiple people were diving in to the other incidents that have happened, like you dove into this one.
1: Yeah, I, I would like to see it. Like I said, this is the book that I was hoping to read about this incident because I knew that as I was researching it that there was so much to learn from it. That, that if people could read a book like this and see. A would-be gunman or active killer, as he's progressing towards his crime, they would be better apt to prevent others. this because it wouldn't be the first time they saw it, they could say, "Oh, I, I recognize that this, and we need to to act on it now before it blows up into something that we're going to regret." Because there are clear, there's clear signs in the in the book as you're reading it, you can see, and it's frustrating when you're reading it that you see people. Recognizing the the clues and doing the appropriate warning, and then it, the ball gets dropped and he moves on to another base and it starts all over again. Or so I do think that people would would benefit from from reading this. And if we were able to dissect other incidents like you're saying, it'd be all the better.
0: And and your book's not about finding fault. It wasn't trying no. to see who who who's to blame for this. Now there could be a lot of finger pointed from the things you've uncovered. Fingers pointed, there could be quite a few things. I mean, there's obviously a lot of failures uh, along the way, and uh, it was multiple, not just one. There was many of them with the uh, uh, the B fifty two crash, as well as the uh, with the the shooting at, at Fairchild. It's there, there's a tremendous amount of failures in there, and it's uh I am sure there's the same thing with with so many of these events of, of failures at the home, at the school, at the at, in workplace. Um, we could probably find them in, in all these different places, and if we can catalog those and learn those, maybe we could not be doomed to repeat history. We we, we just talked about a little bit about uh the history. Uh, of Dean Melberg and kind of gave the listeners a picture of that. You're not going to get the full understanding unless you pick up Warnings Unheeded and read it. Uh, It is a quick read. When I I picked it up, when I first got it from Andy and I read two chapters, I was like, all right, this is going to be good. But then I had SHOT Show coming up. I had to put it down for three weeks. And then when I picked it up again, I read for 10 hours straight, my wife was pissed at me. It was four in the morning with the light on. I finally closed it, and then the next day I finished the book. I read it in no time because, and I, I, I didn't want to do anything else but read the book. There was there's it, it turns into so many positive things. It's not all negative. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, in the next episode. We're going to talk about the events that happened on that day at Fairchild Air Force Base, and not only the, the evil that happened, but there are some warnings that are unheeded on the very same day. Before the first round was shot, there were times when this incident could have been stopped. And then we're going to also talk about the heroism that took place in that day because there is a, a, there is a theme to what happened at, at Fairchild that we can take away from that is something that I've been preaching for a long time and it was, It blew my mind when I read this because I I didn't know the details of this event. And the only lives that were lost that day were the ones that sustained unrecoverable injuries. And there is a reason for that. And it needs to be talked about. This episode of Gunfighter Cast is brought to you by Bravo Concealment Holsters. Use our coupon code GUNFIGHTER at checkout when you visit bravoconcealment.com and get 10% off your entire purchase.